Yacht Ed, this is Taylor Dota of Turning Points Magazine. I am here at the Memorial Union at the Tempe campus where I am attending the Sun Devil Drum Tie Circle, an event held every Wednesday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. The music from today's podcast features the Sun Devil Drum Tie Circle. A hi-hat to Christopher Luna and the group for the warm invitation. Welcome to the first episode of the Turning Points Podcast. Turning Points, a guide to Native student success, is a student resource geared for Indigenous college students at Arizona State University. I'm Chance Dorland. I've worked in radio and podcasting for more than a decade. This semester, ASU placed me at the Center for Indian Education to help students produce a podcast version of their award-winning magazine. As the team releases more episodes, you'll hear from many of the students who have made Turning Points possible. Before we get started with today's episode, the Turning Points team and I would like your help. We want to continue having authentic Native music on the show. If you are or know of a Native musician who would like to be featured, email turningpoints at asu.edu. Check out our past stories by visiting our Medium page at Turning Points Magazine and keep in touch with us through Twitter at ASU Turning Point or Facebook.com slash ASU Turning Points. You can also stop by the Turning Points office on the ASU Tempe campus in Payne Hall, room 301. For our first episode, today I speak with an ASU faculty member who has been integral to the creation of the Turning Points magazine. My name is Brian Brayboy, and I'm a member of the Lumbee tribe. I'm originally from North Carolina. I am a faculty member. I'm a president's professor at, at ASU. My research really largely and broadly centers around the experiences of racialized peoples and institutions of higher education with an emphasis on indigenous students, staff, and faculty. More specifically, I've become interested over the years about thinking about the ways that indigenous knowledge systems, that is, how people think about what they know, um, how they engage the world, that is, their their being and the values that drive those. So those components make up knowledge systems. I'm really interested in how indigenous knowledge systems intersect with knowledge systems of higher education. Where are there places for congruence and where are there divergences and how do we create more possibilities for those things to come together? So sometimes people talk about this in ways of saying, I'm really interested in indigenizing higher ed. I just go about it a little bit differently. The work that I'm really doing currently that's really focused on the trying to marry knowledge systems really comes in my role as senior advisor to the president, uh, who is really focused on American Indian students. And for me, it's about how do we create an institution? How do we help generate possibilities for an institution like Arizona State? to be more open and welcoming of Native students. And it's not just the students themselves, although they are important, individuals are important, but how do we create a structure 
at the institution that allows them to bring their culture into play, honors that culture, and sees them as both native peoples and as students simultaneously. And just like the Turning Points magazine that we'll talk about here in a moment, your office is located in the Center for Indian Education. Tell me about that. Well, I'm the director of the Center for Indian Education, and the center was founded in 1959. As you and I talk, it's our 60th anniversary, and the center was originally founded to meet the educational and social needs of children in the 22 tribal nations and communities of the state. In over 60 years, we've not really moved away much from that, although we've expanded that work so that we have partnerships in places like Alaska and Canada, Hawaii, New Zealand, Australia, uh, and other places where we're really trying to think about how can we best help tribal communities meet the needs of their children and to fundamentally help those children and those nations create futures of their own making. At the center, we house the Journal of American Indian Education, which is now in its 59th volume year. So that journal turns 60 next year. Uh, we write policy papers, and we really serve as a place to prepare really future academic leaders who happen to be Native, Native peoples. So, of course, we're talking about the Turning Points magazine, and this is the Turning Points podcast as that is an extension of that. So I'm interested kind of when this whole idea became something that was actually being discussed. When did someone have an idea of creating a magazine for and by Native students? So let's go back to when I was first appointed in, in, on October 6, 2014. I was appointed by President Crow to be the senior advisor, one of his senior advisors, um, what people often know as a special advisor to the president on American Indian initiatives. And when I took the job, part of what I said to President Crow at the time was, I want to spend my first year engaging in a listening tour. At the time, we had just a little bit under 2,700 American Indian students on campus. And part of what I really wanted to do was to really go to our four in-person campuses and every week, often twice a week, and spend time with groups of students. And we asked them a really specific question, which is, what's it like to be a Native student at ASU? Now, it just so happens that that time corresponded with a woman named Amanda Tacchini coming on and working as a postdoc in our center. And Amanda would accompany me on these visits. So about twice a week, we met with students. And over the course of the year, we met with almost a thousand students. Sometimes there were two students at a time, and sometimes there were 80. And in those meetings, part of what we heard that became really important and a bit of a rallying cry for turning points is the students told us some some things that didn't really surprise us, but certainly concerned us. One is that the students felt invisible. Two is that they felt lonely, which isn't exactly the same as being homesick. Some of them are homesick, but, but part of the invisibility and the loneliness really goes together, but the loneliness is also them not seeing themselves present. They, they felt like they didn't matter 
to the larger institution. And I think that's different than the invisibility in terms of what they were doing. So we continue to have conversations with them really around those those issues about feeling invisible, feeling lonely, and um, feeling like they don't matter. One of the other things that emerged from that is a student said, we, had, we would later ask them, now that you're a junior or senior, what do you wish you knew then that you know now? And we started to, what started to emerge is the students suggested they wanted a guide of some sort that would help them navigate the institution, but would also help them understand what other people, other Native peoples around them were, were doing. And so that's kind of the, in some ways, the genesis of this magazine. It came from students. It didn't come from us, just to be clear, which is really true of the magazine itself. This magazine is, is for students and it's written by students. And we've really tried to remain true to that in every way possible. So when this idea came up, we hosted a series of focus groups with Native students to say, hey, here's what we hear you saying. Is this right? You'd like something like like some sort of college guide to help steer you around ASU that might have some inspirational stories in it. Is that right? And they said yes. And, and I think one of the important things, even if we're doing this virtually and electronically, is a lot of people at ASU said to us, just do a zine do something online. And we asked the students and they said, absolutely not. We want something we can hold on to. We want something we can put in our backpacks. We want something that we can read when we want to read it. We want something that we can share with other people. So that's kind of how the magazine came into being. We'll hear more from Dr. Brian Brayboy in just a moment. As Turning Points continues to grow, so do the number of Native students at Arizona State University. In the fall 2018 semester, the Native student body reached an all-time high of more than 3,000 students pursuing their studies at ASU, with the largest group of Native students choosing the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences as of 2017. U.S. Department of Education data also shows members of more than 200 tribes attend ASU. Back now to my interview with Dr. Brian Brayboy to learn more about the history of Turning Points. So now the magazine is looking to put out its fourth issue that'll come out this month. Uh, let's continue to talk about the past of the organization and how the magazine got off the ground. What role did you play in the creation of Turning Points, the magazine? Well, I've given you some sense of, of that. It was, it was really generated from, from listening to students. So I helped facilitate conversations that led to its creation. And then part of what I did was was really find funding for the work and then turn the students loose. Uh, Amanda Tuccini, who was a postdoc, as I mentioned at the time, really started to take ownership of, of this in terms of putting the team 
together, we reached out, we interviewed some people, and um, came across this amazing young woman named Taylor Nelson, who was a student at, at Cronkite at the time. And uh, she really, Taylor started to emerge as someone that one could write extremely well, two who had a quiet sense of leadership about her, and she was super reliable. We had some grad students at the time who were also helping us with the work, people like Sequoia Dance, and we just started going. And so part of what I did was find funding, provide them with a rubric and a framework, meet with students to say, how's it going? What do you need? And then mostly I just got out of their way and let them do their work. And so as that has been the case, moving along now, as I just mentioned, the fourth edition coming out later this month, uh, have you kind of stayed away and let the students do their work as you just mentioned, or have you remained somewhat involved with the magazine through all this time? Yeah, I mean, I'm always involved in it. And, and there are times when we have had to, well, I've had to exercise uh, a bit of authority on behalf of the students. I don't, there there are certainly moments when I recommend a story, but generally they don't take my ideas. Um, I, I will relay stories to them, but, but the content really is being driven by students. So in that way, yes, I, I don't, it would be really interesting for you to have a conversation with folks about their own take of this. But in when volume one, number one came out, um, I had made sure that people in the offices that were relevant and pertinent for what we wanted to do, people in the provost office and the president's office and marketing uh, deans in multiple colleges that we were working with, including including Chris Callahan, who's the dean of Cronkite, um, and others who had been really, really crucial to this starting to take off. We handed them a version, a PDF of the magazine. And um, they said to us, this needs to go to the marketing hub. And at the time, Part of what was happening is the president really wanted all of our magazines, anything we were putting out to have a similar look and feel. It was part of our branding strategy. So I took that to the marketing hub. I sent them an electronic version of it, went over and I sat down with them alone and they said, I'd seen that they had marked it up with red ink and, and, um, the head of the marketing hub was there, and I thought, well, that's unusual that he's sitting in on this. And they said, well, we really like the content, but this isn't the right font. It's not the right color scheme. We don't, these things need to happen. And I said to them, okay, great. I get it. And so what they really gave us feedback on the time is really the look of the magazine in keeping with the brand. So it was about font. It was about color palette. It was about the cover in keeping with the brand. And so what I ended up doing in that way is saying to them, okay, this all sounds good. Can you teach the students how to do this? I think they wanted to fix it. And, um, and I didn't want them to fix it. I wanted them to teach the students how to do this so that each time an issue came out, our students would know what to do. 
And so I went back and I relayed the message. And I, and to be perfectly honest with you, students weren't happy about it. They felt like we had imposed on their work. And so we had a conversation about the importance of really aligning with branding strategies, that we weren't changing the content of what they were doing. We weren't engaged in, in their creativity in any way, shape, or form. But it was fundamentally about what does this thing look like? in a way that didn't take away the indigenous flavor of it, but just made it so that if you put it inside other ASU magazines, it would look like it belonged. And part of what we were doing is helping students understand how they belong, not assimilating them. It's just fundamentally, does this fit in here? And so then the marketing hub was fabulous. They had the students come over. They did a, they did four or five hours with them showing them how to make things work. And one of the most gratifying pieces for me was in issue number two, actually one and two, is seeing Brian Skeet, who was one of the original visual people for us, one of the one of the, the artists for us, holding up this color swatch next to the initial run of the magazine coming off and making sure that it met ASU standards. So here he was, this unbelievable designer, graphic designer, who's very, very smart and visionary in this, who is really now taking on and taking ownership, not just of the content that's been created, but also in the structure of it so that the students started negotiating with the printers on prices and going over and looking at things and saying, we've got to change this, we've got to change that to make sure that the color scheme was right. And the font was right. And so they took ownership of every single component of the magazine. So was I involved? I was always sort of in the in the periphery and in the background as someone who reports to the president of the university who has a little bit of authority to be able to move things along. But in terms of the content and in terms of the look and in terms of the feel and in terms of the message, that's all students. I was there really as a silent support for them. So I take no credit for any of the success of the magazine. It's all, it's really fundamentally, this is students writing and creating for students, which is why it works. Yeah, it's been really interesting hearing your description of some of the past that uh, I have yet to learn. I'm new to the team. Uh, I just got to ASU also at the Cronkite School, as you mentioned, Taylor Noda was at in the past. And I've learned, you know, here and there things that have been going on uh, in the time that uh, I was not part of the team. Uh, but it's been really, really interesting to hear your side of things because I completely agree with you. I think that it, it, it is so valuable as something that is by students, but also does have that professional feel that immediately when you see it, looks like it belongs with any other uh, publication that comes out of ASU. Um, I'm wondering now, uh, as you mentioned, you know, you kind of had a foot in creating the magazine as in going out and asking students what they were looking for. And they said, you know, we want a print product. We don't want just a a web version. And I think that was that was a great choice. I've already seen the benefits of, of that choice that was made in the past. Do you have, Dr. Brayboy, any other hopes or goals for where you'd like the magazine to go in the future? Are there any initiatives that maybe I might not be aware of for these upcoming uh, editions as they keep rolling out one every semester? Well, I think what you're what we're doing now, uh, a a podcast version of this, I think is is great. I think the opportunities, as we've discussed, for authors who are limited to writing 
somewhere between 250 and 700 words um, to be able to really delve deeper into the topic and the subject because what you see is um, is only a portion of what authors know about and what information is really helpful. So I think finding ways to um, be able to present some of those findings and that information in other ways is, is really crucial to this. I think the magazine will continue to be successful if we, meaning administrators and faculty, stay out of the content and stay in a supporting role. And so my expectation in the future is that it's going to evolve. We we live in we live in such an interesting moment in terms of what is circling around us and what students the kinds of things that students care about and that, and that are impacting them. And really what we need to do is say, what is it you think your fellow students need to know? And for us to continue listening to students who say, we don't need what you did in 2015 or 16 or 17. It's 2020 or it's 2025. And the magazine needs to reflect that. So my hope really is that there remain funding remains, that we find students who can both express themselves as indigenous students, but also as professionals, and that as faculty and as an institution, that we really have students determine for themselves what the magazine should look like. All of that happens, of course, within the larger context of branding for the institution, but the current leadership at ASU is aligned really nicely with the work that we're we're doing. There's no outside pressure from them on what kinds of stories we should be running. They hold it up, they highlight it, they feature it, they they point to people about the brilliance of our students. And and so for me, my hope is, is that we continue to help students produce a product that demonstrates to the world just how smart and capable they are. And that's a huge takeaway for me on this, that if you provide resources and you provide space to really smart people, they create things that you would have never imagined. And so there's a, there's a lesson here, which is if I had done this magazine, it would have looked differently and it would have never worked. And keeping your hands out of it, a product that's already successful, is really kind of the key to the future. Thanks to Dr. Brian Brayboy for joining us on the very first episode of the Turning Points podcast. Follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you listen to podcasts. As the nation's first Native American college magazine, the Turning Points team wants to spark innovation for new ideas, services, resources, and opportunities to enrich the Native student experience. If you have ideas for future episodes or would like to become part of the Turning Points team, email turningpoints at asu.edu or message at ASU Turning Point on Twitter or facebook.com slash ASU Turning Points. Today's episode featured the music of Christopher Luna and the Sun Devil Drum Tie Circle. Oh, no, oh, wait, nay, nay, oh,
Don't know.